Welcome to the Compass Church Podcast with Pastor Tim Jacobs, a ministry of Compass Church, Goodyear, Arizona. Join us now as we look into God's Word to be challenged and changed. That on this morning, Lord, in this part of eternity that you've awakened us in this time, Lord God, that you put all the details in place and you made it all possible for us to come and to be in this moment. I don't even understand the fullness of what this means. But yet through your patience, through your sovereignty, through your grace, through the uniqueness of how you provide, here we are. And as if it wasn't just enough for us to come together to worship you, Lord, you show up. You show up. And you let us know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you are hallelujah. Lord God, you're amazing. You're amazing. Who are we that you're mindful of us the way that you are? We thank you. Amazing God you are. Lord God, I lift up my little brother. Use him in a mighty way, Lord. Use him in a mighty way to spit forth your truth, Lord. That once we came, we would be equipped and empowered and then strengthened to go out from this place and be ambassadors indeed of your righteousness. Lord God, that all we see are circles of influence, Lord, that we would be willing and be bold to stand up for truth. And as people see your reflection in and through us, may you receive all the glory. Lord God, many of us came with a lot of baggage, Lord. Help us to lay it down that we might carry your grace. And it's in Jesus' name, the name above all names that we pray. Amen and amen. Please take your seats. Good morning, man. Wasn't the worship just awesome? Amen? I mean, it's real talk. Amen, amen. Good morning, live streamers. Good morning. Good morning to you guys who are here. I'm Pastor Andre, one of the associate pastors here at Compass Church. And I got to tell you, it's not a coincidence that you're here. Expectations about 75 minutes, which we're a part of. Shout out to the parents. Shout out to the ministry workers for our children's ministries, family room. Things are just amazing there. And I wanted to share this with you guys. Thank you for all of your prayers for me and my family. I'm a grandpa again, so praise God. Praise God. That's good stuff. Amen. Amen. God's good. God's good. Before you leave, do me a favor. If you want to find out more about our church, make sure you start, stop at the Connection Group and you get the information that you need. Again, let's go and worship the Lord. Amen. Well, good morning. I'm Gabe. I'm the worship pastor here and I'm part of the preaching team. And before we get started, I want to tell you a story about a guy named Rock. Not uh, the Rock, you know, you couldn't smell what he was cooking. But simply Rock. Wasn't on his birth certificate. His parents weren't that cruel. But everybody knew him as Rock. And Rock was, uh, he was a man's man. I mean, you have to be with with a name like Rock, right? You couldn't be soft-spoken or anything like that. You'd have to be gruff. And he was. He was tough. He was gruff. He spoke roughly. He actually, he was a sailor and a fisherman, and he probably spoke like a sailor and a fisherman. And he, he spoke brashly. He was, he was tough to the point of a fault, like he was, he was what you would consider stubborn or, or bullheaded. 
But somewhere in his 30s, he came to know Jesus, and he decided to follow Jesus and his teachings. And so Rock started pursuing God, and, and it changed his life. It changed the trajectory of where he was going. Now, he wasn't perfect. He still had a lot of rough edges, a ton of them. I mean, he still spoke out of place. He asked dumb questions. He often got angry and short-tempered. He, he, he even was so violent at one point that he should have gone to jail for what he did to another man. But luckily, by the grace and the healing of Jesus, he didn't. And one of the low points in his life as he was following Jesus in a moment of weakness, he denied his faith just to avoid ridicule and threat. And it ate rock up inside because he thought he was tougher than that. But the cool thing about rock was he had gaining, he was gaining wisdom. Wisdom isn't just being smart, it's really just going to the school of I'll never do that again. And Rock was really good at learning that way. Every time he made a mistake, every time he stumbled, he would just kind of go, shake it off and go, okay, well, I'm gonna do better, I'm gonna do better, I'm gonna follow. Because what changed in Rock wasn't necessarily that the moment he started following Jesus, everything, like he was just a different person, but what changed was his passion. He no longer pursued his own interests. He just wanted to follow after Jesus the best he could. And somewhere uh, later on down the road, he decided to change vocations, and he went from being a sailor and a fisherman to a preacher. And so he wanted to become a preacher, and he, he faced a lot of opposition in this time. He started his own church, and as he started his own church, people kind of looked at him funny, like, who are you? You know, you're just kind of this gruff sailor. You're just a fisherman. What, what, what do you know? But he, he decided to do it anyways, and as he did it, even though he faced opposition and it was tough at times, it was very, very fulfilling. He baptized tons of people. He, he told people about the Jesus that he had experienced and, and people got saved left and right. But he still had some, his, his edges were a little smoother, but he still had some rough edges. There was even one moment of weakness. He fell into what everybody in ministry has to avoid, the trap of legalism. He started adding to the gospel, like, like uh, it's not just faith in Jesus alone, which is what he knew and had experienced, but he started adding things, like you gotta do this, and you gotta not do that. And as he started to add to it, luckily he had some friends around him, godly men who said, hey, you're out of place, and they called him out. And he changed. And the, the edges got smoother, and he just pursued God, pursued God, and eventually he's about in his 60s. And in his 60s, the climate of the nation changed where he lived. It was no longer just opposition, like what you believe is kind of stupid, uh, uh, that's hard to believe, that's good for you, but it's not what I think. The opposition got a little more focused and, and intense. Christianity became to be, uh, it was marginalized. It was seen as narrow-minded, as limiting, because the culture said that they were above that, they were more free. They started exploring sexual promiscuity and obscene entertainment. And Rock said, it's, it's getting tougher and tougher to be a Christian. In fact, one of his friends even uh, gets placed under house arrest for preaching the gospel in public. And so Rock sees kind of the writing on the wall. He sees that, that Christians are being ostracized. There's, there's sometimes mobs and riots. It hasn't gotten to the point where there's like a, a legal ban on Christianity, but it's, it's getting tougher and tougher to raise your hand and say that you believe in Jesus. And so he sees the writing on the wall and he goes, I think it's gonna get worse from here. 
and he realizes he needs to say something to his church. So he sits down, and he writes a letter to his church, and that's the letter we're gonna look at today. So if you have your Bibles, flip to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13 through 21. And in it, Peter's going to describe, Peter's name literally means rock. And he's gonna say to us that when things get tough, get holy. Now I know that's kind of cheesy, like, and I made it up, and I still think it's cheesy, but I think it impacts exactly, like it, it sounds like some sort of like Christian bumper sticker you'd buy in the Bible Belt at a gas stop, right? Like it'd be right there next to the WWJD pepper spray. But I think it really does unpack exactly what he's gonna talk about in this passage. So here, verse 13, he's gonna tell us, so if things get tough, we are to get holy. So, so how do you get holy when things get tough? And he's gonna lay out three things that we do. And the first one is this. He says, be prepared. Verse 13, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Be prepared in your minds for action. If you have like an old King James Bible, it might actually say, gird up the loins of your mind, which is the weirdest turn of phrase, right? Like, some of you are like, what, can we say that in church? Like, gird up the loins of your mind? But it's actually, it's not a common expression. We don't say that like today when you're coming into church, hey, top of the morning, gird up the loins of your mind. We don't do that. But back in the day, it was a very common expression, and it, it meant this. I'm gonna give you a visual, not like a personally, but there's a diagram up here. This is from the Art of Manliness. This is what it means to gird up your loins. And, and back in the day where people wore man dresses, um, you couldn't just run into battle in your man dress. You would trip, you would be vulnerable, you'd be exposed, all these things. So what you had to do is you had to gird up your loins. The tunic wouldn't allow you to do heavy labor or fight in a battle. Uh, necessitating the, the girding of one's loins. First, hoist up the tunic up so that the, all the fabric is above your knees and you show off your nice, masculine, hairy legs. And this will give you mobility. Gather the extra fabric in front, pull it through the legs, pull it around, tie it up, and now you've got a man diaper and you can fight. <laughs> He's saying be prepared. But it doesn't just mean just be prepared, like, you know, like you're gonna store water somewhere. He says be prepared in your mind. This is the idea of getting your head in the game before the game. It's, it's, it's a focus. Like the punches are going to fly. Things are gonna get tougher, so prepare your mind for the fight. If you ever watch boxing, like Manny Pacquiao, like I like, or maybe you're into like MMA, the really good fighters look laser focused because they know they're gonna, it's gonna hurt and they're getting their heads in the game. The really bad fighters are all cocky and they do this, this sort of thing, and they're, they're the ones that when they get that first hit, they got this look on their face like, oh, I'm getting hit. But the really good fighters, they're laser focused, and this is what Peter's saying. Gird up the loins of your mind. Be prepared in your mind, not just being prepared, but for action, for what's coming your way. And he says, in being sober-minded, this is the idea. It's not just like reframing from drinking. It's the idea that, that you, you have your faculties about you. You're aware of what's gonna happen around you. Uh, in the military, they say, put your head on a swivel. Be aware, you know, you're gonna get hit, but you should, you should be able to go, okay, that's where I'm gonna get hit from. So be prepared. And how do you do that? Both of these things hinge on this third one. 
set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's clinging to the hope that we have. That's how you prepare. Uh, I was reading this book and they were talking about top level athletes and uh, they did this experiment where they separated them out. And some of the athletes said, just do your normal routine uh, before pregame and go into the game. The other group, they said, I want you to go find a dark, quiet place. This is gonna sound really weird, right? Go find a dark, quiet place. Close your eyes and in your mind's eye, visualize what it looks like when you're winning. You know, if you're a basketball player, you know, visualize, you know, in your mind's eye, you flying through the air with your tongue out like Jordan, hitting the fadeaway J at the buzzer. Or maybe you're an Olympic runner and, and you're sprinting, you visualize the, the, the tape breaking across your chest as you run through first and the finish line. And the, the athletes that did that did exponentially better because they were prepared to go through the, the excruciating pain of what they're gonna go through because they, ha- they had already kind of been down the road and, and kind of experienced what it felt like to win. And what Peter's saying here is visualize the victory, preparing your minds by visualizing the victory. And the cool thing about what Peter's saying is for the athlete, it's still up in the air. They could lose or win, unless it's rigged, which some of boxing is. But uh, they could lose or win. But for the Christian, it's not. When you visualize the victory, the hope that you have because of the faith that you have, you cannot lose. That victory is promised. So that's how you prepare. The other way you get holy when things, when opposition comes on you, when things get really tough, is you get disciplined. And we're going to see this in, in verses 14 through 16. It says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all that you do, in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. This verse is all about what you do. It's about conduct, action, the way that you, you move through life, how you speak and how, what, how you interact with others, what you do. And he says to be, so it's about discipline. Discipline's all about intentionality. When we say somebody's really disciplined, like an athlete, it's just they, they have it intentionality about how they're going to reach their goals. It's very simple. So it's, it's hard in practice, but simple in theory, right? He goes, okay, well, I've, if I want to be a winning athlete, I've got to exercise, I've got to eat this way, and it affects everything that they do. But some, for some reason in Christianity, we, we shy away from that. I think it's very simple why. We'll get to that later. But we shy away from discipline, and we, we want to be disciples without discipline. And you can't separate those things because a disciple is somebody who follows a discipline. It's like right there in the Word, And so you have to approach, he's saying your actions have to have intentionality. They should look a certain way and be a certain way. They should be different. And that's really what the call of holiness is. Holiness means the separation, the difference. Uh, I don't know, this is where things get tough, and that's probably why the slogan sounds a little lame, like when things get tough, get holy, because we don't really understand what that word holy means. It's just kind of like a churchy word that we use all the time. I don't know what kind of images or connotations or things rattle around in your brain when I say holy. Maybe you think of like balding monks with robes and halos over their heads or naked babies with wings playing harps 
or maybe it's Ned Flanders, or it's Mother Teresa, whatever it is, I want to make it simpler for you. Holy just means to be separate. And God's holiness is what we're called to. How do we be holy? How do we be separate like God? And really, God's holiness is what kind of distinguishes the Christian worldview. So I'm going to look at a couple worldviews on what God's place, like his, where does he begin and we end, and that's going to distinguish us from, from the rest of the worldviews. First, there's pantheism. Pantheism looks at God and it says everything is God, nature and God. There's no distinction between him and us and you and the chair and the water bottle and the drum. All is God, and it's just kind of a dream, and the distinctions are just, they're, 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 they're false ideas. They're no, there's no distinction. The next one is deism, and deism, is, it, it sounds like a little closer. It's, there's, there's definitely a God, and there's definitely creation, but they're not connected in any way. There's just God, creation. God kind of like made it. He's like a clockmaker, right? He winds it up, and he sets it, and it goes, but he's not gonna interfere with our affairs. We're left to our own devices. But it's not the holiness that we see in scripture. It's not the God that we see in scripture. Most religions approach it this way. They say there's God and there's creation. They're different. God's above. He's different. But creation's got to fight its way to God. It's got to do things. It's got to earn ways. It's got to submit. It's got to do this. It's got to do that. And if it doesn't do those things, it will never reach God, who's so different. It's like a futile battle because you could never reach something that's so distinct and different from you. But the holiness that we see in Scripture holds in tension two ideas— God's transcendence and his eminence. God is transcendent, and that's, it's, it's a big flashy word that they use in, in Bible college and seminary. It just means to be above or other than. God is so different than us, it doesn't even make sense. We see that throughout the scriptures. We see it throughout the Psalms. God, your, your ways don't really make sense to me. You're high above. You're not just like a bigger version of me, like an old man with a beard and a robe. You're so different that it, when I dwell on you, I can't reach the end. It's so above and other than. But he's not just that, because that would be deism. But he's also imminent. And imminent means to remain in. And this is the God that we see in Scripture. He's not just other than, he's holy in the sense that he's high above and lifted up, but he also works throughout history. And he works in the hearts of men. We see it as he speaks to Moses, as he walks with Adam and Eve in the garden. We see it all throughout the stories of the kings and, and the way that he interacts with David and Saul. We see it most prominently in the picture of Jesus where God came down and met us, where we were at. He didn't just stay far away, but in John it refers to Jesus as the word, and it says, and the word was with God in the beginning, and the word became flesh, and it dwelt among us, and the word was the light and the life of men. God didn't just stay far away, but he reached down to us and met us where we were at, and gave himself for us. Crazy. Crazy concept. So you gotta be prepared by clinging to the hope, and you gotta be disciplined in your, in your actions. You gotta be different uh, than the rest of the world. That's what he's telling his church. Things are gonna get tough, 
and you should still look different than the rest of the world. But we're not just gonna hide away. We're gonna look different, and we're gonna reach out to people, and we're gonna give ourselves for it. That's how you're gonna be holy like God is holy. And the third way we pursue holiness is this. It's by being motivated. Because if you do the discipline thing and you do the preparation thing, but you have the wrong motivation, it's gonna end up all wrong. If you're motivated by like your personal, your PRs, like, oh, I'm gonna be this good and this, then it's gonna be this pride and this piousness and you're gonna look down on people and that's not gonna give you the holiness that God has. But you gotta be motivated. He gives you three ways to be motivated and the first is this. And if you call on him as father, verse 17, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Throughout your stay here on earth, conduct yourselves with fear. Now, fear of the Lord or fear of the father might have weird negative connotations to you because we live in an imperfect world and you probably had an imperfect father. But the picture of a father that that God wants us to have is the, the, per, the perfect love that a father could have. I was reading this autobiography by Teddy Roosevelt, and uh, you know, he was the president, youngest president ever. He was like the Renaissance man. He's like, if ever there was a larger than life character in the modern era, it was him. He, he hunted lions, he <laughs> hunted elephants and bears. He's just like this man's man. He's really tough, yet he's intellectual. He, he wrote a ton of books. He wrote a lot of letters. And it's hard to think of this guy looking up to anybody, but in his book, he talks about how much he adored his father. He was his hero. And the way he describes his father, I mean, if, if your kids, if my kids ever describe me this way, it's like a, a win. But he, he talks about how he was completely gentle and compassionate, yet he was strict and stern. He kind of held these two things in paradox. Uh, he had such a high standard of us, but not so high that it was oppressive, so high that we, we, we felt like we needed to reach it. He said, he only physically disciplined me but once, and he never needed to do it again. <laughs> and it's a really funny story about him hiding from him underneath the table and all this. But he says, there's no man on this planet that I fear except for him. And there's no man I love more. And when we talk about God as the father, that's kind of the picture. It's not this fear of the Lord that's like he's Zeus with lightning bolts ready to punish you for whatever you mess up. But it's this fear of like, I adore him so much that I don't want to disappoint him. And I know if I disappoint him, he's gonna still love me. And I know he's not gonna cast me out. But I wanna do better because I wanna see him look at it and, sit and smile and say, well done. It's not the fear that paralyzes you and keeps you from moving, but it's the fear that keeps you pressing forward, watching how you walk, because you're vigilant and you don't want to disappoint him. So be motivated by the fear of the Lord. He also tells you to be motivated by the value of the cross, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways you inherited from your forefathers. This like sinful nature that's been going on since like the beginning of the book. You were, you were ransomed not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Be motivated by the value of the cross. Um, when I was younger, I, didn't, uh, I grew up in a home where it was very easy to think that you didn't have much value. 
My parents divorced when I was really young. My father was out of the picture. Um, and my mother was a single mom, which is the hardest job on the planet. Trying to fill shoes you can never fill. Trying to work hard. Make sure you can provide everything. She did the best she could. But it's really easy to feel like you didn't have value as a kid. But my grandmother would come every Christmas. And my grandmother, when she came, uh, she's this like sweet little old lady. She would tell us about Jesus and all these things. And my grandmother did this thing where we would go out, you know, to Kmart or whatever, and <laughs> that doesn't exist anymore, uh, you know, Walmart. And we would go out, and, and we'd be shopping for things, and I would find some sort of toy, you know, it was like an X-Men action figure, like Wolverine or Batman, and I'd bring it to her. Sometimes it was a big thing, like a, like a Super Nintendo, you know, that was really cool, or things like that, a bike. And I would bring it to her, and I'd say, would you buy this for me? And my grandmother would always have the same response. She would say, well, how much is it? And I would tell her, you know, sometimes it's $3, sometimes it's hundreds of dollars. And then she would say, I think you're worth more than that. And she would get it for me. And it wasn't about, like, getting spoiled, and it wasn't about the things. I can't even tell you the things that she bought. But she placed in me a value because what something's worth is what somebody's willing to pay. And you have immeasurable value to God for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. So if you're sitting here and you're going through opposition and you're saying, I don't know if I can do it, I don't know if I can live differently, I don't know, be motivated by the value of the cross that he was worth, you are worth him giving his son. And that speaks nothing of our greatness and everything of God's greatness. You have immeasurable value to God. There's a, there's a song that we used to sing. Uh, it got really overdone in the early 2000s, but it was uh, the song called Here I Am to Worship. And I'm not the emotional pastor on staff. That's Dave. Dave, you know, he would, he, he's the one who tears up, and it's authentic, but, it, you know, he's, he's the crier. I'm not, I'm not the crier. But uh, there's, every time I would sing that song, when we got to the bridge, it hit me every time I would, didn't come, but it, it came close. And you sing this line, it says, I'll never know how much it costs to see my sin upon the cross. And every time I sang that, I thought through all the junk in my life, all the things that I had done wrong when I could have chosen better. And I realized that that cost God something. And it's not about earning. We can never earn it. We can never pay it back. But it is about motivation and effort. Uh, Dallas Willard said, grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. In fact, the only appropriate response to grace is effort. And so be motivated by the value of the cross. And the last thing he tells us to be motivated by, he says this. He says, who through whom, who through him are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave glory so that your faith and hope are in God. It's this idea, the future hope of what we have. He's kind of already foreshadowed it in the be prepared, but it's also your motivation I hate Superman. Superman, let, Superman is the worst superhero of all times. I, like, I'm adamant, I'm passionate about this. I hate Superman, he's like, he's, he's ridiculous. He's super strong, he can fly, he's got, his powers don't even make sense. He's got freeze breath, laser vision, x-ray vision, heat vision, all these dumb powers that don't even coincide. He's super fast. I, there's this comic book where he races the Flash, right? 
I'm like, seriously, Superman? You gotta race, you gotta be faster than the Flash? Speed is all he has. Can you just let him be the fastest? But I hate Superman. He's like, he's, he's too good. He, he's too strong. He's impervious. Bullets just bounce off of him. And I hate this, this stupid dis- disguise, right? Like it's like Clark Kent, Superman. Clark Kent, Superman. And no one can tell the difference. It's, there's so many plot holes. But what, what I hate about Superman is he's, he's not brave. He just goes into the fight. He can't feel any pain. He's just going to win. I like Wolverine. I'm a Wolverine guy. Not like the Hugh Jackman. He's lame. Not that guy. The, like, 1990s X-Men cartoon, the, the short, angry, gruff, because I relate to it, uh, <laughs> Wolverine. Because Wolverine's superpower, if you're not f- up on the comics and things like that, is uh, he just heals really fast. That's it. He heals really fast. So he goes into the fight, and, and he heals so fast that you basically you can't kill him. You stop his heart, his heart will start back up. You, you, you puncture his brain, his brain will regenerate and heal. If he's got like one cell left, he's going to regenerate. But he goes into the fight knowing it's going to hurt, knowing he's going to get cut up, beat up, and all this stuff, and it's going to be really painful, but knowing that he's going to come out the other side alive. And that's the motivation Peter's saying. He's saying, hey, things are going to get tough. They're probably going to get tougher. You need to be holy, and you need to be motivated by the fact that you're going to come out the other side. You're going to take your hits, but you're going to make it. So, when things get tough, get holy. Here's Peter writing this book, looking forward. Rock, he's, he's writing it and saying, when things get tough, get holy. Things are starting to get tough, and they're probably going to get worse. And even if they don't, you still need to live like this. And to his credit, they did get worse. Three years later, he's going to be writing the next letter, encouraging them to hang on to the faith from prison. Shortly after, the emperor is going to light the place on fire, the whole co- his own country, and blame it on the Christians. And they're going to be hanging from the streets on fire to light the streets at night. Shortly after that, they're going to put Peter to death. He could have ran away, but he st- decided to be holy like God's holy and remain in the culture and to give himself. And so they put him to death. He gave his life. He believed in this. He believed in it back uh, because he learned it from the school of I'll never do that again. Uh, when he was under the pressure earlier, he, he gave in. And that's always the temptation. I don't know where you're at in your life. I don't know what things try to squeeze the faith out of you. But when the pressure comes, when things get tough, the temptation is that you, you go, well, there's, then there's, there'll be no distinction between me and the rest of the world. I'll just, whatever, you know, it's just, I'll, I'll go to church, but there, my life won't really look different. I'll just give in. And some of you sitting here, there are things that God's called you to, obedience that God's called you to, that you just need to wrestle with, and you go, you know what? I don't get it. It's going to be hard, but I'm going to give, I'm going to, I'm going to do it. I'm going to make that distinction. Some of you go the other way. It's like this, almost like uh, you go, well, we'll just separate then. We'll be different. 
and I'll be so different and I just won't even ever talk to them. I'll quit my job, I'll do whatever. I'll just go be a pastor, that's gonna be much easier, that's what some people do, and it's not. (laughs) But I'll just separate myself from the rest of the world, but that's not the holiness that Peter calls us to. And some people, they feel the oppression and then they get disgruntled because they're not motivated by the right things and they say, it's me versus the world, it's us versus them. There's this great song that says, if it's us versus them, then it'll be us for them. But if you approach it that way, with the wrong motivation, hoping that people will reach up to you, meet your expectations, that's not the holiness that God displayed and he said to be holy like he is. What he calls us to do is to live so differently that it causes people to turn their heads and go, I don't understand that. But you also remain in it. You remain in the fray, you stay in the fight, you take the punches, you live differently, and then you ask yourself, how do I give myself for them? Not me versus them, I'm not waiting for them to to reach my expectations. What do they need? How can I love them? They'll know you're Christians by your love. What you're willing to give up. How do you, how do you make somebody obedient? Anybody know? Because I want to know. How do you make somebody, like I have a five-year-old. I wish I could just make her obedient. But the only way that you can uh, motivate obedience that we find in scripture is you exemplify it. So you start asking the question, how do I exemplify this obedience? And how do I meet them where they're at? Because that's what God did. He didn't wait for you to reach up to him, but he gave himself. And so that's the holiness that you're called to today. The holiness that, that Rock lived out and felt. So let's pray together. Thanks for joining us today. Why not ask God to change your life so you can go and change your world for Him? To find out more about our church online, go to www.compasschurch.info and we'll see you next time.